I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. This edition of Parallax Views is brought to you by the $10 and above tier supporters of Parallax Views on Patreon. So, with that in mind, producers credit shoutouts to Gunner, Mark, Alexander, Catherine, Tilo, Emilia, Jeff, John, Bert, Brian, Elliot, Michael, Brace, Nick, Mersham. Galen, Arlen, Bo, Gigadelic Media, Chance, Chase, Dan, David H. Y. Kellerman, Saadade, 13, Kathleen, David, Ava, Bob, The West Bank Robbery Podcast, Jamie, Enoch, Gary, Max, Ishtofer, James, Martin, Matthew Ho, Brian, Nobody, Thomas, and Dano. And now on to the show. Hey there, Parallax News listeners. On this edition of the program, we turn our attention back to the plight of Armenian Christians in the old city of Jerusalem, the Armenian Quarter. This time around, we're joined by Jerusalem-based attorney, Daniel Seideman, who will explain the curious and twisty tale of the threat Armenian Christians in Jerusalem currently face. As Daniel puts it in the conversation to follow, it's like something out of a movie or a mystery crime thriller novel. Very complex, but also, I feel, very important, and it should not be ignored. We'll be talking about that. We'll also discuss issues related to Israel-Palestine in light of the Gaza War. Specifically, we'll be talking about the two-state solution, the one-state reality, Benjamin Netanyahu, the occupation, and much, much more. So, with all that in mind, let's get to it with Daniel Seidemann. Welcome to Parallax Views, the guest that I'm very, very excited to be speaking with. Daniel Seidemann has been a practicing attorney in Jerusalem and a partner in a firm specializing in commercial law since 1987. Uh, he's been a participant in numerous Track 2 talks on Jerusalem between Israelis and Palestinians. And his website is uh, The Excellent uh, Terrestrial Jerusalem. And we're going to be talking about the situation in the Armenian quarter. Uh, but uh, first, is there anything I missed in uh, that little uh, bio that I, I just gave out of you? It's just fine. Thank you. Much better than I am. <laughs> <laughs> so 
I've covered the Armenian quarter situation uh, twice now on this show, but that was back in November. Uh, I had uh, Anas Ambrion, actually, from the New Arab, who did one of the major investigations into the situation there. Uh, but maybe you could give my listeners a refresher. Uh, it's been a very confusing situation uh, for me to follow because I, I think a lot has um, happened since November. Uh, what is the, the basic outline of what has been occurring in the Armenian quarter? Okay, well, I, I'm going to start earlier than that uh, because I think it's important uh, for your viewers and audience to know that the Armenian community has been in Jerusalem since the fourth century uh, and has been a constant presence in Jerusalem. And today it is one of the, you know, the Armenian quarter is one of the four quarters of the old city, the smallest, uh, only a couple thousand people. And some of the Armenian residents trace themselves back to centuries in Jerusalem and others are uh, survivors or uh, expats of the Armenian Holocaust. Um, they are located strategically between Jaffa Gate, the Jewish quarter, and adjacent to the Christian and Muslim quarter. Uh, the One of the few roads in the old city of Jerusalem goes through the Armenian quarter on its outskirts. It's a rather closed community. The Jewish quarter and the Muslim quarter and the Christian quarters are not as clearly defined. Um, it's also a community that is... Uh, not in the binary situation, are you Israeli or are you Palestinian? They're neither, but they're deeply connected to both. And that puts them in a unique position. It also makes them uniquely vulnerable, um, which brings us uh, to the current situation. Uh, as I noted, the Armenian community is small, and I would say it's a challenged community. Uh, people are struggling to maintain the viability of the Armenian quarter and the viability of their community. Um, there were rumors that began in um, 2021 about the sale of a choice piece of property. Um, the precise size of it is not known because some of the documents are not readily available, but we're talking on the order of uh, two and a half, three acres of land. It is strategically located in uh, the corner of the old city, um, basically the northwest corner of the old city, inside the ramparts. Uh, and it has been used for years as a parking lot. Now, that may sound, you know, all of this fuss about a parking lot. Well, number one, uh, the communities in Jerusalem are uh, zealous about maintaining the integrity of their properties, especially a community that's as challenged as the Armenian community. But it's also a lifeline. Um, life in the old city is not easy. And accessibility is a major problem, especially with communities with elderly. It is a, it is vehicular um, could you, access. What, one moment. Uh, I, you broke up for a second there. Okay, could you repeat that? You said uh, life in the old city is, is uh, difficult. 
the old city is a difficult place to live. There is very little vehicular access. The streets are narrow. Uh, and especially for a community such as the Armenian, uh, where there are elderly, having vehicular access to their homes is a lifeline. Well, it turns out that the land was purportedly sold. Uh, it was sold without the knowledge and consent of the Armenian community. Uh, the agreement was signed by the patriarch. Uh, at the time, the community knew nothing of this, and it only came to light over, over time. Um, it's, it remains murky until this day. Uh, one of the mysteries uh, of this whole affair is, how did it get started? Where do you pick up the thread? And it turns out that a year before all of this started taking place, um, the Israeli government, by means of a governmental authority, the Jerusalem Development Authority, arrived in agreement with the patriarch or patriarchate uh, to renovate the parking lot in exchange for the community allotting certain amounts of parking to the public, which is you know a reasonable kind of thing. It's a 10-year deal. What's interesting for me is that the Jerusalem Development Authority has in many cases been the long arm of the settler movement in East Jerusalem. Uh, and that leads me to suspicion. Now, I have to emphasize, I have all sorts of circumstantial evidence. I do not have the conclusive evidence that I would like. And what I'm speaking to you, I'm speaking solely on behalf of myself. Um, but the Jerusalem Development Authority has been uh, the, the body that's implementing a government plan uh, rather covert, not entirely secret, but covert, to encircle the old city outside of the ramparts of the old city um, uh, and to integrate it into a very special vision of Israel surrounding the historical, religious, and cultural core of the old city with biblically motivated settlements. It seems odd to me, and more than a coincidence, that this whole saga began there. But we'll come back to it. Um, the rumors were rampant, and um, over time, it became known to the community, which was rather taken aback um, and, and shocked by this. Um, and questions were being asked, and being asked of the leadership of the Armenian community, namely the patriarch and the patriarchate and the officials around him. Now, I, I want to explain the delicacy of this situation. You have a small community that's struggling to maintain itself, uh, caught between civilizations, a Jewish civilization, a Christian civilization, you know, and, and there they are, and they have a leader, the patriarch. And there were questions um, directed reluctantly to the patriarch, which went unanswered. To this day, how this went down is not entirely known. 
At some point in 2021, there was a transaction where the patriarch, the patriarchate, the patriarch in the name of the patriarchate, um, gave a 99-year lease to developers, um, a company that, that was established strictly for the purpose of this transaction, or it was the, the day that the transaction happened by a an Israeli developer who goes under different names. And this is Danny Rothman or... It's Danny Rothman, Danny Rubenstein, et cetera. Let, let's put it delicately. Uh, we don't exactly know his identity. Uh, you know, in, what we know, I think it's safe to say that there's a checkered past there somewhere. Um, and here's an unknown developer showing up now, there were negotiations before this, an unknown quantity with no um, display that you know, has the skill, the backing, the experience. It was, that was the lease for 49 years and an option to uh, prolong it. Uh, and it empowered the lessee, the corporation to engage in a planning procedure to to um, build a luxury hotel on the site adjacent to the ramparts of the old city. Now, were anybody to come to me and say, they're going to build a hotel flush up against the ramparts of the old city, I would ask you, what are you smoking? It's not going to happen because there are very strict regulations uh, preserving the character of the old city. And they've been in place since 1967, but even before that, the old city was treated as a, a relic of enormous universal significance. It has been declared a world heritage site by UNESCO, and you can't build near the wall. You cannot build above the lower part of the turrets of the wall. You have to have setback of uh, eight meter, eight yards. Okay, um, very questionable. But I say that with caution, because in our experience in the past, and I have a lot of experience in this, um, the law doesn't exactly apply to the settlers of East Jerusalem. The Palestinians whom they target are not protected by the law. Um, Israelis such as myself live according to the law and the settlers of East Jerusalem are above the law. So things that are impossibly become possible with them. Um, this wasn't merely theoretical. Um, uh, members of the community, having found out uh, all about this, uh, heard that uh, initial plans had already been submitted to the Jerusalem municipality, and that turned out to be the case. It was not a formal opening of a vial. They're nowhere near that. But the conceptual ideas were presented to the municipality, and the activists walked in, asked to see the documents, and lo and behold, uh, they, they showed them the documents, which was an element of verification. It's another question why the Jerusalem municipality has been so eager to uh, help in such a controversial project. 
Apparently, uh, at the time, so it's been reported, they uh, engaged a world-renowned architect, Moshe Safdie, um, uh, who is built all over the world and actually lives very close to the Armenian quarter, if I'm not mistaken, in the Jewish quarter. And uh, he was at least reported as being the architect in back of this. He has since dissociated himself with the project. All of this um, basically came to a head with, with certain tensions between the, the leadership of the Armenian community and the community itself, but that has pretty much dissipated. Um, in recent weeks, there's been an exchange of information, um, exchange of ideas, and for reasons that we don't completely know, um, a few weeks ago, the Armenian patriarch canceled, revoked the agreement. Uh, at the time, we did not know, we outsiders, the community, did not know the cause of action, um, but there has now been a legal suit filed by the patriarch to um, uh, suing Zana International and the principals involved in that um, and asking the district court to declare the agreement null. And that is pending before the court. Now, the position of the community um, is as follows. Um, the patriarch doesn't own that property. The patriarch owns that property, perhaps in name, as a trustee for the community. It's not his personal property. Um, and uh, he's honor bound to uh, um, uh, make use of that property in a way that's compatible with the interests of the community and with the knowledge of the community. Um, and that transparency was lacking. Um, the community organized early, you know, early on, six months ago, the spring of 2023, and began protests. Um, one of the people involved in this, um, a, an Armenian priest who has since been defrocked, uh, fled the Armenian quarter. This sounds like a really bad novel. But really, I, I assure you, it you sounds know, I, like something out of a movie or a mystery novel. Well, I, I keep on telling the activists in the Armenian quarter who are real delight. I say, don't sell the movie rights. <laughs> okay, there's a great story here. Uh, well, the guy, the guy uh, apparently fled is is um, in California somehow. He's American citizen. Uh, and he was, it's, it is out of the movies, he was run out of town. I mean, there, there was pursuit, you know, demonstrators accompanying him. The police escorted him. And uh, apparently when they entered his room, they found um, uh, suitcases or bags with uh, large amounts of cash in dollars, um, expensive whiskeys and the like, just to add color to our story unless you know in the case that you're getting bored um and and the armenian uh, community uh, organized by a number of young very impressive 
activists began a campaign to expose what happened. Uh, this is not adversarial or confrontational with the patriarch, but to insist that the integrity of the Armenian quarter be maintained. Now uh, we get into some of the drama. At one point, the developers showed up with earth moving equipment and started to do work and to take down a wall, which was not of any great historical significance. But this was being done without advance warning, without the knowledge and the consent of the community. And demolishing a wall requires a building permit in Jerusalem. And apparently, there is none. And the community organized and said, we're not going to let you in. Uh, it was it was pretty much a you know a sit down strike. Uh, is this they, is this where the pictures came out of uh, Armenians standing in front of the bulldozer, not wanting to move? Uh, um, that's correct. Uh, but there have been two subsequent incidents. Uh, they have been for weeks now uh, having a vigil there. There is. Uh, a presence there of community members around the clock protecting it. They've set up, you know, a tent, and and they're they're there all the time with the support. Now I haven't taken a referendum, but it's clear that they have popular support. Um, but this really um, made matters more urgent. You know, facts were being created. Uh, I would like to note that all of this took place after the outbreak of the war in Gaza. Now, uh, it is, again, my suspicious mind, it is customary uh, for the settlers in East Jerusalem to take advantage of very tense situations in order to try and you know, get away with something. Uh, but the timing of this is suspicious. Since then, on two occasions, there have been attempts to take over um, the property physically. Um, uh, one of the developers uh, who is either a partner or has purchased an interest uh, in this, in Zana International, um, showed up with um, masked men, uh, some with uh, weapons, uh, some, you know, their faces revealed um, and tried physically to enter. And that's where you began to see the real clash. Um, I am told that the 20 or 30 guys that showed up were Palestinian residents of East Jerusalem. And, and this was this past December. This was no, this was in November. Okay, this is okay. the, the plot thickens. Um, and uh, there were also some of the settlers from East Jerusalem present there. Uh, again, my suspicious mind. But the Palestinians of East Jerusalem weren't told, you know, you're going to be, you know, you're going to, you know, you're to club your neighbors. And the minute they found out this is about, they just went home. <laughs> Um, but this, I, I, I was wondering about that because what I kept hearing was, oh, it was actually these Palestinians or these Israeli Arabs. They they wanted to take advantage of this. So I wanted you to 
clarify that whole yeah no no but, you know, the, well it it it, it, um, it gets more interesting <laughs> um the, the situation is extremely uh, tense. And uh, uh, last Thursday, I believe, December 30th, if I'm not mistaken, um, um, in, in the morning hours, another group with one of the developers showed up uh, with, again, clubs. This time they were not armed with um, uh, uh, weapons to the best of our knowledge. There were no settlers present. And apparently, they were Palestinian citizens of the state of Israel. In other words, Israeli Arabs, who basically were being used as mercenaries. And there were fisticuffs there. Um, and the crowd dispersed. The police have been playing an interesting role here. Under normal circumstances, the police would say in a situation like this, unless there was real violence pending, a plague on both your houses, take it to court, it's none of our business. Um, initially, the police seemed to be siding with the developers and not affording the protection uh, that was uh, necessary uh, at the time. Um, they become more fair-handed, but also uh, this on Thursday, uh, there were two young activists from the Armenian quarter who were arrested by the police and held in custody. And um, uh, the community, with legal representation, went to the magistrate's court. And the magistrate's court says, you know, what, what is this about? You know, the Armenian community has been in possession of this. We're not going to change that situation uh, and I'm not going to rule on it. No, release them, you know, with, with some you know minor limitations, which, which was fine. This is, you know, a kind of routine that you have arrests that uh, are really you know, kind of based on nothing. And maybe the policeman had a fight with his girlfriend or something. Uh, but the police decided to appeal this to the Jerusalem District Court which is bizarre. Why are they prioritizing this? And again, um, within hours, the district court handed down its verdict and said, this is ridiculous. These are guys, you know, you have guys being bussed in from distant places, uh, preparing, coming ready, uh, prepared with, for the violence. You know, you don't carry clubs around for personal use in the home. Um, you know, and, and and release them. The matter is now before the courts. Um, the danger is far from over. Um, a blow to the Armenian quarter will be a blow to Jerusalem. Uh, you know, the Jerusalem would not be Jerusalem without the Armenian quarter. And Trust me, we have only seen 15, 20% of what we need to know. So this is uh, basically coming attractions. There is one last thing that I would like to point out. Uh, the developers are using the anti-Semitism card. Um, basically saying 
the and and we've seen these accusations which are completely libelous that the community is receiving their marching orders from the Palestinian Authority in Ramallah. Nonsense. Um, that um, they are opposing it because it was sold to a Jew. Well, apparently at least part of the owners, you know, a large part of the owners aren't Jewish. Um, it has absolutely nothing to do with the facts. There isn't an ounce of anti-Semitism in this. Um, uh, the Palestinian Authority and the Jordanians, the Jordanian government, which is the custodian of holy sites in Jerusalem, are infuriated this and have suspended the patriarch. Uh, I'm not. I don't know whether that has been. Uh, he, he's been to restore, you know, restored to good graces after he canceled the agreement. Uh, but it's an indication that this is not as it's been described. This has been described as a real estate dispute. This is anything but a real estate dispute. This is uh, aggressive activities and questionable means at one of the most sensitive places in the world, at one of the most sensitive times. This is not a real estate dispute. Stay tuned. So real quick, I, I also wanted to note something. I, I th So the exact uh, development company, I think it's called Zana Gardens. I just Zana want Gardens. listeners to know That's that. Right. Okay. So with, with this situation, I saw some people when they heard that um, Israeli Arabs or Palestinians were being used as mercenaries. Uh, I had some people react to hearing that news by saying, oh, this just sounds like a propaganda to smear Palestinians. And I, I don't think that's the case. So no, maybe you can explain no, why no. would Palestinian Israelis or Israeli Arabs participate in this? Because one of the developers is a Palestinian citizen of Israel. That simple. Uh, and and you know um, you, you go out you know you don't put an ad in the newspaper asking for vigilantes <laughs> you go where you can find them uh, and uh, that's apparently what they found then when they tried to do it in East Jerusalem uh, it didn't work <laughs> so they went further afield at the beginning of our conversation you were very emphatic about you know how long the Armenian community has been in, in Jerusalem. And I feel like you did that for a specific reason, because I've been seeing people online and people responding to your tweets saying they're a guest in, in the House of Israel. They're a guest in the Jewish yeah, state I, of Israel. Yeah. You know, look, I'm an attorney um, from Jerusalem. I don't do a lot of legal work, at the, but I deal with Jerusalem. That's the subject that I deal with. And what motivates me is with my experience, I see this to be a very um, serious move uh, that's harmful to Jerusalem. And all of a sudden, I'm getting attacked by bots from Azerbaijan who are, yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I had no, look, I, I since uh, this whole thing took off and I, I became familiar with the situation. I do follow what's happening in Armenia. Mm -hmm. uh, so I wasn't completely shocked, but there was a smear campaign 
um, uh, their guests, they've never been here, they're in collaboration, etc. And immediately, um, uh, Armenian um, from all over the world told me, Danny, don't worry about it. They're from Azerbaijan, they've got their own agenda. Mm -hmm. um, but that's what happens when you live in Jerusalem. Um, to be honest with you, I'm having fun. <laughs> Um, look, it's, it's, it's serious. I think that the community has a good chance in court. It's certainly not to be taken lightly. But when I say I'm having fun, one of the great gifts of Jerusalem is when you become involved in local politics, you find civilizations and uh, you find history and you find um, the delicate balance that makes Jerusalem Jerusalem. And through this involvement, I've become familiar uh, with one of Jerusalem's important communities in ways that I haven't done in the past. And by the way, I can say the same about the Shuafat refugee camp. So I, I, I guess the, the reason I brought that up was because, I, I mean, I, I want people to understand, I mean, the Armenian community has been there for a very long time. Um, and also, it, what misinformation or disinformation has come out around this issue because I see one of the things I see whenever I talk about this issue is I'll get an email or two saying, well, you know, there is no actual problem. It was the the Armenians reneged on this this deal. Uh it's their fault and everything else is uh just just a, a manufactured controversy. And I don't believe that for a second. So I, I was wondering if you could address what misinformation you're seeing about this. You know reminiscent of a situation which is very different in many aspects that took place a couple of years ago when there were four families who were about to be evicted from their homes by settlers on the other side of the old city, outside the old city in Sheikh Jarrah. Uh, and the government was actively involved in, in this, uh, which we could establish, and it went before the Supreme Court. And the potential large-scale displacement, these were the first four among perhaps a hundred families um, that were in danger of displacement in an entire community. And the position of the Israeli uh, government and the Israeli foreign ministry and all of our Hasbaristas were, this is just about landlord-tenant dispute. This has nothing to do with the conflict, which is about as disingenuous as you can get. Uh, the Supreme Court ruled largely in favor of the Palestinians and chastised the government, but also one of the justices said, this is not a routine, a landlord-tenant situation. This is where the histories of peoples in Jerusalem are clashing. Um, if this is so routine, why is something, why is all of this murky? Why is there no transparency? Um, there are odd situations. Why do I have a photograph recent of the developers sitting down in a Jerusalem hotel and having a nice chat? with the heads of the settler organization, the senior head of one of the settler organizations. Um, I don't believe that the Armenian community is being targeted, but they are acceptable collateral damage. Now, be, it may be part greed and part 
ideology. Now, there's another issue that I, I have to tack on, and it's 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 not accidental that um, it sort of slipped my mind. Uh, had this conversation taken place before October 7th, the outbreak of the war, we would be talking about hate crimes against Christians in Jerusalem. Now, there have been incidents of uh, young yeshiva students spitting on priests for a number of years, but it's always been localized on Mount Zion, not far from the Armenian quarter. And there were half a dozen cases a year. There have been no injuries. I certainly don't make light of it. Since the formation of the Netanyahu government, there was a surge. I mean, there were a dozen of cases every month of uh, hostility shown largely spitting on the uh, on uh, priests or on pilgrims or on the doors or vandalizing in ways that we had never seen before. And this is something that's worthy of a discussion in and of itself. The Armenian quarter is on the route that um, Israelis take from Jaffa Gate. They don't want to go through the Arab market, so they will go through on the road and um, through the Armenian quarter with the residences on the left-hand side and the lot that we're talking about on the right-hand side. And it became customary for young national religious Jewish zealots to stop and to spit on the gate of the Armenian quarter. Um, and there were at least one occasion in which uh, somebody was uh, caught on security cameras urinating on the wall of the um, Armenian community. Don't confuse these issues. They're, they're, they're slightly related in that the dismissiveness of the Israeli government of Christian interests in Jerusalem is something that has been coming stronger over the years. And the needle has moved. But when the needle moves for sane people, it also moves for the people who are in the extremes. And the extremes have become more numerous and more aggressive. Ironically, since the outbreak of the war, I have not heard of one instance in which there was a hate crime against Christians, which is an interesting thing. I'm not sure I understand why, but it's definitely a thing. I think people understand that this situation is so tense. This is not the time to mess around with games like this. And I'm not treating it nicely, but they're also at the forefront of that. Two more questions about the Armenian quarter. Um... So can you explain to my listeners, if they're unfamiliar or just confused by the settler movement, what is the goal of the settler movement? Is this just, are we just talking about essentially uh, a messianic movement that wants this, wants to take up more and more land or? There are different uh, categories of settlers, different uh, communities. The settlers of East Jerusalem are a class unto themselves. Um, and you can't deal with the issue without understanding and getting into their shoes. They view the establishment of the state of Israel 
as part of a continuum with the first and second Jewish temple. Uh, not necessarily the temple itself. There is a Temple Mount movement. There's some, they are not necessarily messianic in the acute sense, as you guys have in the states with the end of days evangelicals like Mike Pence and Pompeo and, and, and the like. They see um, the significance of Israel is the restoration of the historic glory of Jewish civilization. And they, as a result, they don't settle everywhere. They settle in places which, from their perspective, resonate with biblical history. So that means the old city of Jerusalem and the visual basin around the old city where there are more holy sites than anywhere else on the planet, places like the Mount of Olives. And that's where their settlements are uh, located. In recent years, this has gone beyond we're going to move into a Palestinian neighborhood. But in cahoots with the Israeli government, there's a project to encircle the old city with settlements and settler-related projects, uh, a cable car from West Jerusalem to the settler headquarters 170 yards away from the Al-Aqsa Mosque, things of that nature, or a suspension bridge over the Hinnom Valley, or all sorts of, all sorts of things. Um, this has already had an extremely negative impact on the Christian communities collateral damage. And one such example is inside the walls of the old city at Newgate, which is the major entrance to the old city for Christians and Christian pilgrims, where it's been turned into a night spot uh, with Israeli music and the uh, shopkeepers being paid to keep it open by, at night by settlers. And the music, of course, is Israeli. And the heads of churches have protested. This is undermining the character of the Christian quarter, and they've gone unanswered. Or the most extreme is the proposal, which is currently frozen, to impose a, an, a settler-run, basically, national park over the Christian sites on the Mount of Olives. Um, so I would say the Armenians have fallen into the crosshairs of the settler movement. Can I prove it? Not yet. Give me time. But I do have enough pieces of the puzzle to convince myself, at least, I'm not being paranoid. <laughs> you, you mentioned that this is not just a threat to the Armenian community, but you think it would have... Uh grave consequences for Jerusalem itself. Could you elaborate on that? Jerusalem is a tough town. You know, it is not touchy-feely shucks we all get along. This is downtown clash of civilizations in the one square kilometer of the old city. You have the tectonic plates of Jewish civilization, the Arab world, Muslim civilization, Christian civilization, in one square kilometer. You guys in the States have malls with more floor space than the entire area of the old city. And as a rule, the damn thing works because there's the cohabitation of differing beliefs and differing uh, narratives. It's not coexistence. It's not respect. It's just live and let live. And that is the charm of Jerusalem. Jerusalem resonates 
because its significance radiates well beyond its border. And the history of Jerusalem is littered with rulers who have aspired to possess Jerusalem um, in the name of God or a religion or a nation or an ideology. None of their stories ended well. Jerusalem is a very kind city to those who treat its complexity seriously, and it's one nasty town to those who don't. You know, I know you've spoken out a lot against the occupation, and I think a lot of people are focused on that right now, uh, especially with the Gaza War and also just with the occupation of uh, the West Bank. Um, what would you say to people that aren't paying attention to the Armenian quarter situation just because, I mean, I, I understand why people are focused on the occupation of the West Bank of what's happening in Gaza but why is it important to also include the Armenian quarter into the discussions we're having about Israel? I dispute one word that you said there, and that's the word also. If you think that the war in Gaza is unrelated to what happens in Jerusalem, not so. What starts in Jerusalem doesn't stay in Jerusalem. Now, we have to be very careful here because if you say a wrong word or make a misstep, you will be strung and quartered in the public square. Uh, no, I do not believe that Jerusalem was the cause of the war in Gaza. And I think there is absolutely no excuse for the barbarity of the Hamas. But events in Jerusalem were a contributing cause to what is happening in Gaza. Um, I just spoke with a representative of one of the European countries who reminded me, Danny, you and a couple of your friends were telling us there's going to be a war. We don't know where, we don't know over what. Why? Because in recent years, events in Jerusalem have been driven by the people who weaponize faith. And there are Jews, there are Christians, and there are Muslims. No, don't get me into equivalence. I'm not, you, know. you have the biblically motivated settlers, you have the Temple Mount movement undermining and violating the status quo on the Temple Mount Al-Aqsa. You have end of days evangelicals who make the settlers look tame. You know, we're rapture fodder. And you have the various iterations of the Brotherhood, they, Muslim Brotherhood. They've been driving events and, and um, dominating the discourse. There are events that take place in Jerusalem that resonate with Gaza. And there's an affinity because the people in Gaza have zero chance of visiting Al-Aqsa. They are um, the most devout sector uh, area in, in Palestine and in the Palestinian diaspora, and they're being denied access. And they're seeing reports of things that happened or rumors. And trust me, you know, maybe 50% maybe of what's being reported didn't happen. But a holy war can break out over something that didn't happen. So there is an interaction between what's happening in Jerusalem and what's happening in Gaza. What I believe is happening with the Armenians is not unrelated. 
I see the policies of encircling the Jerusalem or the old city with settlements and their biblically themed parks um, to be an implementation of the Trump plan without Trump. And it entails the establishment of the supremacy of a very certain Israeli Jewish perception, which I don't believe the majority of Israelis subscribe to, um, the restoral of an ancient Jerusalem, which is, by the way, appears on the maps of the settlers. I'm not making this up. It involves the denationalization of the Palestinians. You're a gaggle of individuals rather than a national collective. Fragmentation of Palestinian East Jerusalem, physically with these settlements, geographically, uh, socially, and economically. And here, it is the marginalization of the Christian and Muslim equities in the city. And regrettably, um, the Armenian community fell into the crosshairs or, or this. I was recently, you know, like a couple of weeks ago in London. And the situation there is just terrible in terms of intercommunal relations. Uh, there are mass pro-Palestinian um, uh, demonstrations, which I personally don't have problem with, but which uh, have more than a smattering of uh, right-wing ultra-nationalist uh, um, uh, English racists taking place. And there is some demonstration of anti-Semitism. There are have been anti-Semitic attacks, attacks surging in London. Uh, but there is also a, a huge amount of vigilantes against Muslims and Islamophobia. And... Um, I spoke with senior members of the British government, and the subject was how what is happening here in Jerusalem, sort of the source of an underground stream that emerge in Golders Green and uh, Whitechapel and Lambeth Palace in London, because Jerusalem resonates. Um, and in recent years, many of my discussions have not been with the diplomats, but with the military security services who understand that Jerusalem is a, a cultural gem, but it is also uh, challenging security-wise. So maintaining the integrity of Jerusalem is important. It's also a matter of regional stability, and in some cases, homeland security. If you could, uh, with regards to the Armenian Christians in Jerusalem, for people that don't know about their relations with the other communities, um, what are their relations like with uh, other Israelis, Jewish Israelis, and what are their relations like with um, Israeli Arabs or, or Palestinian Israelis? Because I, I think people will get the impression, oh, they must just not get along with any of the Israelis that aren't Armenian Christians. And I think that's a, a misnomer. It, it, it complete, it, it's completely mistaken. Um, I'm basically saying, given the numbers and not being Palestinian and not being Israeli makes them 
doubly vulnerable uh, and in a very delicate situation. And the existence of the community is a balancing act. And they are genuinely of Israel, more than Palestinian communities, and generally of Palestine. Uh, you'll find both, and they are neither. They're a proud civilization caught in the uh, vortex of uh, a, a, a conflict uh, in which they don't have an immediate stake except that the conflict is destroying their home and the surroundings. Um, but I know of no hostility coming from either Palestinians or Israelis towards Armenians because they're Armenian. Um, the spitting is there, but it's because they're Christian and not Armenian. And I would say the government of Israel has very strong ties to this day with Turkey. And there's a great deal of resentment among Israelis um, that our government has not recognized the uh, Armenian Holocaust for fear of our relations with Turkey. So I would say that as a rule, the sympathy of Israelis at least uh, very much lies with the Armenian community. I don't dare speak for the Palestinian community, but I, I don't see that happening there as well. Before we close out, I also wanted to talk uh, just briefly here, if we could, about uh, the, the future when it comes to the Israel-Palestine conflict. And I know you come from the uh, sort of two-state perspective. Maybe you could speak a little bit to that and why uh, you, you feel like the other perspectives, whether it's confederationalism or uh, uh, binational one state, why those won't work? I am introduced as expert on Jerusalem. I think you avoided that trap. There is no such thing as an expert on Jerusalem. It's just too infinite a city. You can be an expert on Mameluk pottery, or you know um, the dirges in a certain community in the 12th century, or the planning, you can't be an expert on, but I have an expertise. And my expertise is the occupation of East Jerusalem. And East Jerusalem is occupied because Israelis have political rights and Palestinians do not. Israelis have all of the political power in Jerusalem, uh, they're 60% of the population, we're 60% of the population, the Palestinians do not. Even today, even in the midst of this absolutely horrible war, I know there is only one way this conflict ends, and it ends in ending occupation. It's an existential imperative for Israel and Palestinians to end the occupation in a way that is compatible with the national interests of both sides. Israel will end occupation or occupation will be the end of us. And there is only one way that occupation ends. It's called the border. Um, I think you may be sufficiently impressed. I don't have a problem living among Palestinians and uh, Armenians and others. I delight in it. 
I describe myself as a political two-stater, a cultural one-stater, and a culinary Palestinian. Um, I wish it were otherwise, but it isn't. This is a bit um, characterizing, but I think there's a there's an important insight here. In Israel, during the last three months that we've been at war, all of the polls and and a lot of the uh, perceptions are that there's been an unprecedented solidarity of between Israelis and the Israeli Arabs and the Israeli Jewish population, uh, higher than at any point in the past. Now, I don't want to over romanticize this. There are bad things happening there, etc. But that is the general tone. In East Jerusalem, there is little support for Hamas, but there is a great deal of sympathy and identification with Hamas and no solidarity with Israel. Now, the Palestinian citizens of Israel and the Palestinians of East Jerusalem are cousins. Um, you know, it, it, in people are alive who grew up together. And what I see is that Israeli democracy is doing pretty good in going th through this crisis. And Israeli occupation is failing because there's no such thing as a successful occupation. The day after a border goes up, all things become possible. You can move towards um, uh, a confederation or various things we can hardly imagine. But this will not happen until the playing field is leveled. And the playing field is leveled in one way, a border. My friend Kamal Husseini, who is the president of the Bank of Palestine, uh, uh, reminds me, we Israelis and Palestinians have to get divorced, if only to get married the next morning. That's the essence of my two statements. Now, I have to tell you, walking around the last few years, I've been treated like a dinosaur, which in, you know, according to my age, justified, but Oh my God! You know, you know, two state. Nobody believes in two states, and even the even those who profess to support two states were doing it tongue in cheek, and were basically two state agnostics or latent one staters. I walked into the office slightly before COVID of, of a senior uh, ambassador, an ambassador from a very important European country, and I walk in and he greets me. The two state solution is dead. You're condemned to being an apartheid state. What do you want to talk about? Now, his government supports two states. The two-state solution is not, it's not coming back in fashion. I think that there's a recognition. Well, real, real quick, too, not to interrupt you, but I, I think it's important to note. I, I've, I've often said to people, I think the two-state solution is dead, but that doesn't mean it can't be resurrected. <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm laughing because I uh, took a group of uh, Christian uh, pilgrims who are very involved in the conflict. And part of it is to show them how this is impacting on the old city. And we were driving just past the Benedictine sisters and the Carmelites on the left-hand side. And I was asked about the two-state solution being dead. And my reply was, 
it's dead. But the one-state solution is dead because it never existed. The two-state solution is dead because it was killed. That which doesn't exist can't be conjured into existence. That which um, um, has been killed can be resurrected as we got to the Christian holy sites on the Mount of Olives saying, there's a bit of tradition regarding resurrection in this town. So yes, I believe that the two-state solution is inevitable. I doubt very much that I will live to see it. But it is the only way that can secure, in a balanced way, the interests of both sides. It is politically impossible today. Uh, and I by no means think that there's going to be any kind of substantive permanent status agreement in the near future. Uh, but what we have to do is to bridge the chasm um, between the politically impossible and the historically inevitable. And we have to know where we're going. When you say uh, we need a day after scenario, the question of one state, two state, red state, blue state is enormously important, even if I won't live to see it. Because you can't go anywhere unless you know where you're going. In that regard, though, do you think, I want you to be able to respond. What would your... What would you want to say? Because I do have one staters that I know listen to this show. What do you want to say to them? And also, as much as you're pro to state, I, I think you've also said that you're you think there should be lively debate. You're not for shutting down uh, people I, with one state views. Yeah. Okay. Um, this is just a free association. 2015, I believe, I took senators. Uh, um, John McCain, Lindsey Graham, Senator Barrasso, out on a tour of looking at these things in East Jerusalem. It was riveting. Um, and it was a very interesting discussion. And um, at the end, McCain asked me, what do you want from us? And I said, look, I know that I'm not going to get political support out of you. At least not. But you give it, you're, you're listening. Uh, I don't ask for an allocation or anything like that. What I do want is make the conversation that we are having today on a Shabbat afternoon in Jerusalem possible in Washington. You are members of the most prestigious club in the world and you've allowed yourself to be bullied into cliches. I have been saying with friends who are one-staters. Some of my best friends are one-staters. Number one, we uh, can go a long distance together and to common purpose. We share a lot in that regard. But I have not seen a serious discussion taking place anywhere um, uh, on one-state, two-state. And again, not polemically, sitting down and examining each other's um, uh, positions. I've had that kind of discussion in one place, in East Jerusalem and among the young people. I would say they're post-two-staters. They don't believe in political processes, period. Uh, they are all, you know, we've got to end occupation anyway possible, um, and we're not committing to anything 
If anything, it's one state. And I would ask them, great, show me a trajectory, theoretically, how this one state comes into existence and how it is sustained. I just don't see it. Convince me. And I'm not saying that as a polemical trick. I don't think it's possible. 30 years after the border goes up, I think that it's eminently possible, but it won't happen until there's a border. Uh, closing thoughts here. I just wanted to mention, it was interesting what you said earlier. You said uh, either Israel ends the occupation or the occupation will end Israel, or you said something along those lines. And it reminded me of something the historian Rashid Halidi recently said to me, and I, th I think you've spoken uh, to uh, Dr. Halidi before. He said to me uh, when I interviewed him that, you know, Israel's policies right now seem to be about creating insecurity for Palestinians to create or to maintain security for Israelis. And he says that doesn't work. Creating uh, permanent insecurity for one group won't cause your group to have you know, a stranglehold on security. In fact, it makes both groups more insecure. Is that along the lines of what you're saying with, uh, you would, know, either the occupation ends or it ends Israel? Well, I, I would um, put it this, I have put it this way before the war. And at great risk, I have been saying it after the war. Life in Israel will not be paradise if life in Gaza is hell. That's at the basis of it. Um, and um, my Zionism, and I am a Zionist, is the world is a dangerous place. And it is very dangerous for people who don't have the imperfect structure of statehood to protect themselves. The Jewish people's right of determination is to give us a secure place in the world. Palestinians know that the world is a dangerous place and doubly and triply dangerous for Palestinians, and they will not be able to maintain their nationality without the right of self-determination. The problem is that our fears endanger them. Their fears endanger us. Again, no false equivalence. Things are complicated. But when security issues become shared security issues or addressing security issues uh, of the other side, there will, won't be a political process unless the Palestinian people recognize the traumas of the Jewish people in the Holocaust, which we had glimpses of, but we won't be able, they won't be able to engage with us unless we Israelis understand the Nakba happened. It's the formative Palestinian um, uh, experience in the national identity. And the problem is that each side is scared stiff of the traumas and the equities of the other side. We have to get over that and then a very sober way mutual security. I also wanted to ask, uh, just before I let you go, and I, I know I've kept you longer, I apologize for that, but, um, you know, I've, I've had guests on like uh, Nathan J. Brown and um, Ian Lustig, uh, who talk about the one-state reality, which is very different from a one-state solution. Most people I know who talk about the one-state reality uh, 
are two staters actually but do do you agree with the one state reality hypothesis 100% first of all it's it's very curious because the first time i started working on these issues geopolitically and not as a um as an attorney was with rashid khalidi any analytic so these conversations have been going on uh, since 1993, I believe, um, among us. And I do know and ad admire Nathan Brown. Um, absolutely. Um, uh, occupation is, by definition, supposed to be temporary. Occupation is not a crime. It's what governs a situation after armed conflict. But it's supposed to be temporary. And we have eternalized and perpetuated occupation and we have basically created political social structures, physical structures that create one reality for Israelis and the other for Palestinians in a way that Israelis have something that is tantamount to full citizenship or full rights and where the Palestinians are permanently disenfranchised. And it's all under the authority of Israel including Ramallah. Israel used to occupy Gaza before the war, and we continue to occupy Ramallah, even if there's a Palestinian authority, because we deny Palestinian agency and collective rights. I also wanted to get this in real quick. Uh, with regards to, you, you talked about the day after in Gaza. Uh, one thing I'm interested in is the day after when it comes to a post-Netanyahu Israel. Um, I know a lot of people that, that I, I get the impression they feel like all these problems will just um, magically go away once Netanyahu is is gone. I, I'm, I'm skeptical of that, but I do believe Netanyahu uh, going away would be a very good thing. What, what is your view on the future of Israel post-Netanyahu? Uh, I think the question concerning the day after in general, and this specifically is not only unknown, the answer is unknown, it's unknowable. Um, it's just, we haven't been here before. What I can say is the following, occupation is not only a policy of Israel, occupation is something that we Israelis have become. The policeman at Damascus Gate or the town planner uh, for East Jerusalem doesn't need to be given marching orders to be abusive towards Palestinians. It's been spliced into our DNA. Now that's reversible, but it's reversible with an effort. If this is left unattended, occupation will continue to get worse regardless of the political leadership. On the other hand, I would say the following, and I certainly don't want to appear optimistic in these grim circumstances. The Israeli public, the Israeli society has reinvented itself twice since January 2nd of 2023, exactly one year. Um, hundreds of thousands of Israelis turned out opposing a judicial coup. And last night, with the decision of the Supreme Court, it became apparent that the Israeli public won. And secondly, the Israeli public reinvented itself 
in this war. When it, we discovered that Netanyahu has successfully hollowed out Israeli government, it's empty. It's a, it's a it's an empty shell. Social services, it doesn't exist, and Israel has continued to function by volunteers fulfilling the vacuum left by government. By the way, your president does something similar. He is our surrogate prime minister, giving all of the reassurance and bites and compassion that Israel would love to get from Netanyahu, but Netanyahu doesn't do. I believe that there is a possibility that Israel re reinvent itself after the war. Uh, and I've heard this numerous times, and this is not code word, all of a sudden people are going to be pro-peace. This is going to be very traumatized society with a lot of questions, and many of the questions are justified and have to be addressed. But um, there was a woman who returned uh, from captivity in Gaza, and shortly after she arrived, a journalist, and like intend to recover and recuperate but after that, you, you froze up there for a second. Okay. You said a journalist. Uh, there was someone that returned. There was, okay. Um, after uh, this young woman uh, was released in the hostage deal uh, from captivity in Gaza, you know, uh, and an Israeli uh, reporter shoved a mic in front of her and said, "What are your plans?" Uh, which is, you know, kind of. Uh, course question, in my opinion. And she answered, well, we have to get back to work. We have a country to reestablish. Uh, people are thinking in terms of the reestablishment of the state of Israel after this horrendous period of Netanyahu. Uh, Netanyahu's departure will not end occupation but it will change the discourse and it will create opportunities. And uh, opportunities like this appear very rarely. It's an opportunity that has to be seized. Well, I want to thank you again, Daniel Seidman, for coming on Parallax Views. How can my listeners keep up with your work? Uh, you're on Twitter, X or whatever it's called now. Yeah, I'm 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 on uh, yeah, I'm in uh, Elon Musk's swamp, but it's a good a tool of um, communication with me, and lets me vent. Uh, but we do have the website Terrestrial Jerusalem. On the website, you'll be able to find a podcast monthly, um, and just who knows? Look, whatever happens you're not going to be rid of Jerusalem. So <laughs> things are better, things are worse. It always comes back to Jerusalem. <laughs> well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Daniel Seidemann. In the days and weeks to come, we have a number of episodes coming out, some involving the Gaza War, but also a few that delve into other areas. Jeffrey Charlette, author of The Undertow, Scenes from a Slow Civil War, will be on. And also, I have a conversation with Matthew Gasta, a playwright who helped coin the term Dimes Square, a scene that has emerged out of New York which has gained uh, some notoriety over the past few years. 
So all that and more coming up on Parallax Views. As always, if you appreciate the work here I do at Parallax Views, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. Other than my one advertiser, the mighty Mike Swanson, it is you, the listener, that keeps this show going. So kick me some cash at Patreon if you want to hear more Parallax Views. And with that being said... Until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with The way out is not simply to say don't do it, just to prohibit. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing it like great. So, you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff is a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight with no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.